everyone. Can I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14? We're on page 851 of the Church Bibles, if you received one as you came in. We're reading Mark 14 from verse 53, the bottom of page 851, till the end of the chapter. Paul has prayed for the reading and teaching of God's Word, so let's read from verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the cock crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man or of whom you speak. And immediately the cock crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. I can't imagine anything more dramatic than to be on trial for your life. One of the most dramatic moments in a trial is when the defendant or the accused is called to testify on the witness stand. The first case I ever worked on during my third year placement slash internship during my legal training was of a wealthy employer who was accused of 
defrauding their employees out of tens of thousands of pounds. Uh, they took the stand, they were cross-examined, and I remember the greed so visibly. There's lots of details, minor ones, that are etched in my memory. And ultimately, the, the person was found guilty. Uh, the very first case I worked on after university was a, a child abuse case by neglect. And the accused took the stand, and I'll never forget the way they answered the prosecution's questions. Uh, little remorse uh, all over the place. If you could sound guilty by the way you answered your questions, well. Um, there was a mountain of evidence uh, against them, plus their disastrous taking of the stand led them to being found guilty. And here in these verses, Jesus is on trial for his life. He took the stand, accused of blasphemy, claiming to be God. The, the prosecution was the full force of the most powerful Jewish leaders of the day, and the potential punishment, death. Perhaps there has been, there has never been a more dramatic Christ gave during his trial. Now, chapter 14 of Mark has zoomed in on the days and events before the death of Jesus. We've seen so far in the chapter that Jesus' death is the fulfillment of scriptural prophecy. It's God's plan A to rescue people from their sin. sin. We've seen that Jesus' death is the once and for all sacrifice that satisfies God's just wrath and allows for the forgiveness of sin with echoes of the Passover meal of the Old Testament. And we've also seen that Jesus' death will be the loneliest, most horrifying experience as Jesus will be cut off from God the Father on the cross. For that reason, Jesus prays, remove this cup from me. And thankfully, as we saw last week, Jesus' prayer didn't end there. He follows that up with, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, at every stage so far, Jesus had outs. He, he knew his betrayer. He knew when the mob was coming to arrest him in the garden. He had a 360-degree drone-eye view of all that was about to happen to him. And he still... Out of obedience to the Father and love for the people who would trust in him, he didn't take the outs. He faithfully and lovingly kept going all the way to his death on the cross. Tonight we consider Jesus' trial in front of the chief priest, another chance for Jesus to get out of the experience of the cross. After all, He's an innocent man. Mark's a great storyteller, and he tells the, the story of the trial going on simultaneously outside in the cold. Mark narrows the shot of his camera on Jesus and Peter, and as both of them take the witness stand. Their actions are, are interwoven, but the, the contrast couldn't be greater. On the one hand, Peter, tragic weakness, disappointment and failure, and on the other hand, Jesus, extraordinary beauty, 
love and obedience. So as always, we, we look at the events of, of the narrative and what they have to teach us about Jesus and our response to him. And what we'll do is we'll begin with Peter. So firstly, Peter's failure in the courtyard and what it teaches us, that no one can obey God perfectly. Uh, back in, in verse 27, Jesus had predicted that all the disciples would fall away. That's what we read and saw happening last week in verse 50 of chapter 14, in fulfillment of scripture and Jesus's prediction. Now that's true with, with one exception, Peter. And we read in verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Peter, the last survivor, yes, he, he fled with everyone else, but now he's back and following Jesus. Yes, at a distance, but now he's coming close to the courtyard of the high priest's house. Mark seems to be presenting Peter as the, the last flicker of hope. Everyone else has fled, but, but Peter is there. Peter, who promised faithfulness back in the beginning of this passage in verse 29. Even though they all fall away, I will not, Peter said. And again in verse 31, he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I think the, the, the problem, perhaps, for us as readers is that so many of us know how the story ends, so, so we don't really feel the tension of the moment. We, we've possibly unfairly prejudged Peter. Up until this point in Mark's Gospel, it, it might be the case that Peter will do what he says. Peter, thus far, has been somewhat impressive. He's been bold and wholehearted in his desire to serve his Lord. He's the first to, to leave his whole livelihood to follow Jesus. He's the first to confess that Jesus is the Christ, God's promised King in chapter 8. He's the one at the front of class. He's always most interested in listening to Jesus. And in addition, he's chosen by Jesus to go up the mountain when Jesus is transfigured. And in Gethsemane, he's one of the ones Jesus is depending on the most in his hour of need. Maybe, just maybe, Peter will survive as a faithful follower. Perhaps he'll be the last man standing. After all, this is what Jesus has said we must do to enter the kingdom. Back in chapter 13, Jesus says, You'll be hated for being a follower of me, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Back in chapter 8, Jesus says very specifically, If anyone would come after me, that is, if anyone would come after me and enter God's kingdom, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. And on the flip side, in that very chapter, Jesus says that denying him and being ashamed of him and 
falling, falling away from him leads to hell. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory. Only the faithful will enter the kingdom, and by now, everyone has fallen away. Will Peter do any better? Uh, sadly, we have read, and we see that he fails, and boy, does he fail. Uh, from verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. At the moment, Peter was meant to deny himself and stand with his Lord. Peter does the opposite. It's the same word. He denies Jesus. Of course, it's not just a, a momentary slip or, or an honest mistake. While being cross-examined by a lowly servant girl, and by the way, not a seasoned QC or senior barrister or advocate, I guess it's Casey now, now that the king is in the throne. Anyhow, the point is not an intimidating prosecutor. He denies any knowledge of Jesus a second and a third time in verses 69 to 71. Deny self and follow me, said Jesus. Peter denies ever even knowing Jesus. And in verse 72, Peter's failure is conclusive. And immediately the cock crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. What, what God wants us to understand is that what is true of Peter is true of us as disciples, each and every one of us. Uh, the point is that if even Peter, the, the last hope, the one who saw with his own eyes and heard with his own ears the moment of Jesus' radiant transfiguration and a, caught a glimpse of his divine identity. Peter, who saw all of Jesus' miracles, if he denies Jesus, what hope is there for any of us to, to perfectly follow Jesus and deny ourselves rather than him? Peter, like all of us, needs the saving death of Jesus to forgive his sins. If we followed Jesus for any length of time, we'll, we'll know the desire to, to want to please God and to follow God. I was chatting to an old friend on Friday night. We became Christians at the same time at the end of our uni degrees. And one thing we always do is share of our personal frustrations in the Christian life, maybe our, our struggles with sin and doubt, and, and then we try to encourage each other to, to, to keep going. It's not deliberate, uh, we don't have an agenda, we just do. Uh, but on Friday, having this passage in mind, it was so obvious to me that I want to please God by loving him with my all, by, by being a good husband, by being organized at work, 
by, by taking opportunities to tell those around me about Jesus and invite them to church, by starting my essays with plenty of time, by, by killing sin in all its forms, and yet I, I fall so short in all of the above. But we'll know the good we want to do, but also know our weakness, I suspect. How often we've failed to identify with Jesus, to, to follow him when it really when it's really difficult. We've maybe even flat out denied him in a moment of interrogation or at a party or when you first come out as a Christian to your friends and the first thing they do is ask you if you're the kind of Christian who hates a bunch of people. That's what happened to me. Uh, the pressure can feel overwhelming at times. Fear of man and what they might think of you is so powerful. Temptation to sidestep questions, to deny self, pick up our cross and follow Jesus. We need to to grasp our weakness because despite our, our best intentions and desires when pressure comes we can and do crumble our true self is revealed there's this gigantic gap between what we want to be as disciples and what we're actually able to be and Jesus's assessment of humanity in the second half of, of verse 38, sums it up. The, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And like Peter, we are weak, incapable of the obedience we desire, and worse, incapable of the obedience that God demands. And given what Jesus says, that failure to follow him means being excluded from the kingdom, that being ashamed of him means him being ashamed of us on the final day of judgment, that leaves us in a really dangerous place. This is the disciple's situation, it's Peter's situation, it's our situation now. God, through the gospel writer Mark, wants us to understand how utterly hopeless it is. He wants us to accept that, like Peter, we need Jesus to die for us. And praise God that the passage doesn't leave us with the truth about our failure, because alongside Peter, we see Jesus' perfect obedience. And so second tonight, we see Jesus' faithfulness before the council and what it teaches us, that only Jesus can obey the Father perfectly. We, we've said already, but while Peter was downstairs and outside, upstairs and inside, something else is going on. Another trial is taking place. And the contrast between the two trials is so stark. Outside... Peter is cross-examined by a singular servant girl, and when he is, he crumbles. Inside, in verse 30, 55, there is Jesus stood across the prosecution team of the most powerful in the nation. 
The chief priests and the whole council are there seeking to trip him up. Unlike Peter, Jesus remains resolute to the Father's will. Outside, Peter does everything he can to escape and save his life. Whereas inside, Jesus does everything he possibly can to ensure that despite the false accusations, he goes to his death. Outside, Peter is ashamed of ever knowing Jesus. Whereas inside, Jesus is unashamed of the task the Father has given him. The courtroom drama of these verses is intense. Everything and everyone are conspiring against Jesus. Witnesses are perjuring themselves, and even then, they don't agree on their statements. Jesus' words are misrepresented and twisted and taken out of context. And as they make their accusations, Jesus remains silent to, to the fury of the high priest. Verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked, Have you no answer to me? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. This incident is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 that we read earlier in the service. And finally, at the end of verse 61, the high priest asked Jesus flat out, are you the Christ, God's promised Savior and King from the Old Testament? If you know your, your mark, you'll know that at other times in the Gospel, Jesus has avoided similar lines of inquiry about his identity, or he's turned the question back on the questioner. But, but this time, Jesus answers the central question of the Gospel of Mark head-on, positively and fully. Verse 62, I am, says Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. But by saying, I am, Jesus claims to be the Messiah, the promised one. He goes further by identifying himself as the Son of Man and by saying that he will sit at the right hand of God. Both of Jesus' Old Testament allusions, Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 and at his right hand from Psalm 110, both references speak of the Messiah coming as judge. Now, everyone in the room, all the ruling council of the Sanhedrin, they know who the Son of Man is. He, he comes from the throne of God to earth. And so Jesus' statement is astounding. It's a claim of divinity. And of all the things Jesus could have said, and there are so many different images and references of the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament, Jesus specifically says he's the judge. And he is. And, and so, oh, the irony. He is the judge over the entire world. And we should be in the stand. Everything is upside down. The irony is that the, the chief priest, he himself has just committed blasphemy. The eternal God is standing before them. Jesus is claiming to be 
who he is, and they angrily deny that it is him. Jesus deliberately signs his own death warrant by his answer, by saying that he is who he is, the Son of Man, the true judge, and in doing so well, he sets the course towards his own death. They couldn't pin anything on him. They had no evidence. He has proved himself to be who he claims to be throughout Mark's gospel. And yet, the spotless Lamb of God, who obeys perfectly, is condemned to die a blaspheming madman. Jesus at his trial proves himself to be the only innocent and obedient servant of God. And so the question that remains is why must the king die? Why must the son of man die if indeed he is innocent? And the answer is because he alone is worthy to take the wrath that we deserve. He alone was obedient to God right to the end, and at the cross he took what we deserve so that we can share in what he alone deserves. Uh, that obedience came at such an extraordinary cost. We saw that last week in his prayer at Gethsemane. At Gethsemane, Jesus is greatly distressed. The unflappable one suddenly stunned and more than that overwhelmed with horror why it wasn't just the prospect of physical death lots of people in history many christians who were martyred for their faith in jesus seemed to face death with less stress what causes jesus such shock and horror is what is at the heart of his prayer in verse 36 remove this cup from me the cup of god's wrath Jesus knew he was going to experience the wrath of God, and now he begins to taste how awful the cross will be. You and I will never know the full extent of God's wrath. Only Jesus understood it. Jesus looked at God's just and awesome wrath in the face, and it horrified him. Being a man, it was natural for him to shrink at this, to recoil at the horror awaiting him. However, his desire is to obey the Father at any cost. And that desire is even greater than the desire for self-preservation. Why must the innocent Jesus die? Well, in other words, there was no other way for us to be spared the wrath of God. For God to be God, to be holy and just. In order for God to not be a moral monster of compromise, wrath had to be satisfied. But no one else could take that penalty. No one was worthy. No one except him. And out of love, he took it. He drank every last drop of the cup. And that takes us back to the woman 
at the beginning of the passion narrative of chapter 14, because she is the application for, for what follows. The application comes up front, as it were. Her adoration is the right response, and everything that comes afterwards explains why she did what she did pouring out 30 grams worth of perfume over Jesus's head to prepare him for his death, which seemed crazy at the time. And in fact, it was absolutely the right thing to do. And again, from this passage, God wants us to move from the, yes, I can understand intellectually that Jesus died in my place and that his resoluteness, resoluteness while under trial was part of the process of him getting there. We need to move from that towards adoration for what he's done, to, to treasure it and prize it like that woman did. And in this passage, we're moved to adoration when we realize that nobody else could obey God. Nobody else could take our penalty like Jesus did. No one else could live the life God requires in order to be saved like Jesus did. And I think we know that this is, our, we know this in our own experience. We know of the chasm between the good we want to do and what we do, between our desire to obey and our inability to do so. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. If you're like me, um, maybe you're able to also recognize how even in the last week we've failed to deny ourselves and instead deny Jesus. When my reputation is on the line, how quick am I to be ashamed of him and his words? Uh, have you realized how utterly incapable you are of following Jesus perfectly, how desperately hopeless it is for you if you don't know him as your savior. If we realize these things, we'll begin to move like that woman from mere intellectual ascent to adoration for the most precious thing this world can offer. What Jesus faced on the cross was horrifying, and it's what we deserved. He alone deserved heaven, but he endured our penalty and handed us his reward. The very moment we turned to him saying, I know what you did for me. Please forgive me my sins. I want to live for you. Here's a massive spoiler that's going to come in like four or five weeks' time. Peter himself came to know the beauty of the forgiveness and restoration available in Jesus. Jesus predicted it back in verse 28 of our chapter. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter's story arc is an amazing one. At the beginning of chapter 14, he is sure he's not going to deny Jesus. But then, as we've seen in this chapter, in these verses, he is crying for what he's done. Verse 72, he broke down and wept. But wonderfully, truly wonderfully, it isn't where it ends for Peter. And so will you just please turn with me to chapter 16, verse 7. 
This is the moment after the cross and after Jesus has finished his work. He has died and risen never to die again. And here are the instructions the young man, likely the angel, gives to the woman at the tomb. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And Peter. What precious words they must have been when Peter first heard them. From the horrible, sinking feeling of shame and just feeling terrible that he had denied his Lord to restoration. And here, this tender moment is singling Peter out in these instructions. Jesus was saying so much with just two words. Jesus was saying, I know you failed me. That was no surprise to me. That's why I died for you. But, but don't despair. Your sins are forgiven. All of them. Past, present, and future. And your right to heaven is secure. Come back to me and follow me. And that's in essence what Jesus says to us tonight. To each of us who realizes that we're failed disciples like Peter, to each of us who realize we are weak, who realize our inability to follow Jesus, and how far short we fall of what's required. But to, to us, Jesus is saying, insert your name in 16 verse 7, and John, even him, even me, even you, all is forgiven, all is secure. Come back to me and follow me. That is what Jesus says to everyone and anyone who would follow him. Two trials then, one that shows our total inability to obey God and enter his kingdom on our own efforts. And the other shows the innocence of Jesus, who alone obeyed the Father perfectly. And he offers all of us what's rightfully his, a place in his kingdom should we trust in him rather than ourselves. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his perfect obedience, that though he looked the horror of your wrath in the face, he still determined to follow you. And thank you that in doing so, he took our penalty and gave us heaven. Please help us to move from over-familiarity with the cross to adoration. Overwhelm us with what Jesus has done for us so that it might impact every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.